listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 241. In this episode, we are continuing our ongoing discussion series on the supply chain and labor with Beth Gutilius. But first, the news. In recent months, some of the country's most iconic brands have started organizing. Amazon, Starbucks, and now Apple. Workers at Apple stores across the country are talking about forming unions. Groups of workers at two Apple retail outlets are planning to file for union elections soon with the National Labor Relations Board, according to a recent Washington Post report. According to the Post... Quote, to avoid detection by managers at the stores, employees have been meeting in secret and communicating with encrypted messaging, sometimes using Android phones, whoa, the competitor to Apple's iOS operating system, to avoid any possible snooping by Apple, unquote. Their desire for a union has been driven by stagnant wages, as well as inspiration they have gained from seeing workers at Starbucks organizing at scores of outlets nationwide. This isn't the first organizing effort at the company. Since last year, the company has reportedly retaliated against security engineer Cher Scarlett for leading the hashtag Apple II movement, an online campaign that attempted to hold the company accountable by allowing workers from the retail level to the corporate office share stories about issues like discrimination and harassment. As part of a wave of protests about working conditions and corporate practices in the tech sector, the Apple II campaign became a touchstone for organizing across the corporate, Apple Care, and retail sectors of the company's workforce. That effort, though, did not go so far as to seek formal unionization. So far, there have been no reports of retail workers being fired for their organizing activities. Apple seems to be taking a carrot rather than a stick approach in recent months, offering employees raises. But some workers report that the raises are as little as $1 an hour and often too small to significantly offset the impact of inflation. In some cases, Apple appears to be following the playbook of Amazon, Starbucks, Home Depot, and other large firms by seeking to deter unionization through the power of persuasion. The Post reports, quote, Apple store employees at one store said managers have already begun pulling employees aside and giving speeches about how unions will hurt employees, lower their wages, and force Apple to take away benefits and opportunities such as the, quote, career experience. That's a kind of extended internship at Apple headquarters. Quote, managers try to eavesdrop on employees, they said, while pretending to do something else, unquote. When the workers go public with their union drive, as they are expected too soon, we can expect to see Apple engage in more aggressive union busting. By the way, there have been other labor organizing efforts at Apple over the past decade or so. Outside the U.S., Apple workers in Germany have set up works councils, and some Apple retail workers have gone on strike in France and Italy, according to Wikipedia. There have also been some unionization efforts further down in the supply chain at the factories of the device manufacturer Foxconn. In China, Foxconn workers can only join a state-run management-friendly union. But in Brazil, Foxconn workers have organized with the Brazilian Metal Workers Union, which is affiliated with the global union Industrial. And there was one very short-lived Apple Retail Workers Union in San Francisco, founded in 2011. But the leader of that effort later left the company. So if Apple retail workers in the U.S. revive that union spirit, they'll not only be advancing the labor movement in the retail sector here, but joining a global movement to make Apple a less rotten place to work. Last week, teachers and educational support professionals in Minnesota, specifically the unions that represent those workers in Minneapolis and St. Paul, voted overwhelmingly to strike if the issues at the heart of their contract battles are not settled. 
The coordinated strike, if it happens, could bring business in the Twin Cities to a halt and demonstrates a way for unions to maximize their impact by lining up their contract expiration dates and understanding their demands as connected. In addition, food service workers in the Minneapolis public schools, who are represented by SEIU Local 283, are holding their own strike vote on March 2nd. I spoke with Mariah Robertson Moody, an educational support professional and co-lead of the bargaining team in Minneapolis, about the issues at the heart of the strike. So can you start off by introducing yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about where you work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Mariah Robertson Moody. I am a special education assistant at Roosevelt High School. Um, I'm a part of the ESP chapter. I'm the first vice president. I'm also one of the lead negotiators for our um, educational support professionals in Minneapolis Public Schools. Um, So a little bit about what I do. Um, I support students um, educationally. Um, Currently, the job that I work in, I uh, work with kids, really pushing them into classes, helping with assignments, giving them extra time, extra guidance, um, adapting things, advocating for them with um, teachers, and just in general encouraging them um, when they're feeling discouraged about schoolwork and things like that. Yeah. I understand one of the big issues um, leading towards a potential strike in Minneapolis is that ESPs like yourself um, start at some ridiculously low salary. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and the role of ESPs in this this moment and this push for a strike? Yeah, absolutely. Um, our, our wages are a huge reason for why our members um, decided to vote for a strike. Um, I know in my position, our average um, salary is $24,000 a year. Um, and like I'm currently making like less than than $27,000 a year in my position. I've been working for Minneapolis Public Schools for six years now. So I think that uh, a large part of it is is feeling disrespected in our jobs. One of the things that we're really asking for is to be more a part of our schools um, by being able to participate in things like staff meetings and things like that. And also being able to have time to collaborate with our teachers because our jobs are really uh, bell to bell. We work very closely with students. Um, so a majority, a majority, if not all of our day is student contact and we don't have time to connect with our teaching staff and our, our other licensed staff to better, you know, talk about things, strategize about how we can improve um, concerns that we might have um, just in general, how we can improve the outcomes for our students. So, um, our, our members want to be taken seriously. We are professionals. We want to be treated like professionals and we would like to be paid like professionals um, because our jobs are very, very important to um, the educational experience of uh, students in Minneapolis public schools and really a- across um, the country. Yeah, it's been really striking since the one of the big demands and the push to get schools reopened physically during the pandemic has been that students' sociality is is being affected, students' mental health needs, all of this stuff, um, and that would really imply that that workers like yourself need to be a bigger part of of the school going forward and a bigger and respected better. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, like even in Minneapolis during the pandemic, the people that were um, staffing these emergency childcare sites were ESPs. Those were educational support professionals, you know, like, um, and honestly, those were educational support professionals that are making the least amount of money in our chapter. They start off at like 1564 or something like that, you know, so those people that were doing those incredible um, jobs during a very uncertain time and providing um, childcare um, and risking their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Um, these are those people, you know, these are the people that are um, bathrooming our, our students, you know, like working with our most vulnerable students and making sure that school happens for them. You know, um, these are, are very, very important jobs. Um, like I said before, we spend almost 100% of our day um, in contact with students, um, constantly building relationships and things like that. And like you said, those mental health supports, being able to come back and see the same people um, is really, really important. Our job's very intimate. We need to build relationships for it to be successful. And um, if you constantly have new people in those positions or the people in those positions are not feeling respected, um, things like that, it's hard to retain people. And that makes it hard to build those consistent relationships that we know that students need to be successful. Yeah. So tell about some of the other issues um, that are at stake in, in the bargaining right now. Yeah, I mean, um, like I said, pay was one of the biggest things for um, our ESP chapter, and that like is a multifaceted um, thing. So we have um, PD, our professional development, tied into that as well. Um, we have more hours tied into that as well, recognizing that all of our hours are paid um, regular hours because right now we have um, benefits that don't accrue sick and vacation time. Um, so that is really something that's really important for us as well as, and as, as well as acknowledging the work that people are doing that, um, might be above and beyond the job, like, um, working above your classification or, um, being compensated for uh, the language skills that you have and bring, um, to the job. Um, those are really things that are important to us as well. And I know our teacher chapter colleagues are also fighting um, for smaller class sizes um, and mental health supports that we really need. We need more counselors. You know, we need more social workers. I work at a high school. Um, I work at Roosevelt High School, and we definitely could use a lot more counselors and a lot more um, social workers and mental health supports for our students, especially right now. Um, the pandemic has been very hard on all of us, and it's been hardest on our students. And um, not only just the pandemic, but our, our social, our society around them crumbling. They see these things that are happening. You know, you have things like um, the killings that they're seeing, even, you know, the compounding things of global warming. Um, those are all things that are um, weighing on our students in a different way than they're weighing on the adults in this situation. And 
really getting that support that our students need is is really important. So that is something that the teacher chapter is also trying to make sure that we um, are uh, asking for and demanding for and getting. And um, another thing that they're also um, asking for is um, more security for our um, educators of color. Um, we all, I think we all can recognize that in a district where we serve over 60% students of color, it's really important that they're represented in the people that are teaching them. Um, so retaining and, um, recruiting those educators of color is really important. And, um, that is a goal, a shared goal of our, our chapters. Yeah, so it's really interesting to see the unions in Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, the teachers and support workers, and even I just got to notice that the um, food service workers are taking their mm-hmm. own strike vote. Um, so yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the, the sort of process of getting all of these unions aligned around um, their contract fights and potentially striking together? Yeah, I mean, I think that for a long time, the employer has benefited from dividing us all and siloing us um, when really we have these shared issues, um, like especially across uh, across districts, right? Like St. Paul has some things that they've bargained for. They went on strike two years ago. And we have sat back and really admired some of the things that they've been able to secure through that process. So really, that's been a lot of conversation, long time relationship building. I mean, we were doing rallies with St. Paul for the last couple of years, you know, um, and this has just really been a moment that's just culminated and came together. Um, And I think in terms of the food service workers and other unions within our own district, we see that hourly workers have disproportionately been, you know, um, kept at a lower wage. Um, We're treated like our jobs do not matter. We're we're treated like um, the people that come here day in and day out to do some of these jobs that are, are not necessarily, you know, licensed staff, but very, very important to the foundation of a school and very, very important to the education of our students. So um, we've been having these conversations because a lot of the same offers that we get as ESPs and hourly workers are the same kind of offers that our, um, our other colleagues are getting like food service workers and things like that. So um, we've just been really trying to support each other's bargaining efforts um, and just making sure that we're, we're talking amongst ourselves because um, the employer, Minneapolis Public Schools, has benefited for a really long time with us not communicating with each other. Yeah, yeah. So when is the strike possible? Sort of where do things stand now and when is the, the soonest you might be out on the lines? Um, so we filed our intent to bargain today, um, and that starts the clock. So the earliest that we would be able to uh, go out would be March 8th. Um, we will be doing a lot of negotiating um, around that time, um, and it's really going to be, this could be avoided, right? Like if um, we come to an agreement um, that is heavily dependent on um, our district right now, because what they're 
offering is not anywhere near where we need to be to um, achieve the changes that we are seeking. So um, we will be negotiating, but the earliest that we could go out, the earliest that you could see people on the line is March 8th. Yeah. All right. And so how can people keep up with you and the union in the run up to a potential strike? Um, the best way to keep up with us would probably be our Facebook, um, and that's MFT59. Um, and you can also follow us on Instagram. We have a Twitter. We just ha- started a TikTok. Right. Um, so uh, following us on social media is the best way to get information pretty quickly. Um, we also have signups and things like that on our MFT website, and that's MFT59.org. There's a lot of information on there. That was Mariah Robertson Moody of the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and Educational Support Professionals. A few years ago, the Me Too movement illuminated many of the workplace issues of gender discrimination, gender-based violence, and sexual harassment that had for many years been cloaked in silence. One of the structural issues that the movement helped expose was the rampant use of forced arbitration to block access to justice for victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Forced arbitration clauses have been written into employment contracts so that as a condition of employment, you basically have to sign away your right to sue an employer in the case of abuse or some other harm. Instead, you can only press your claims through a private arbitration process that is very likely to be totally rigged in favor of the management, given that the arbitrator is typically hired by the company. Arbitration proceedings do not have to follow the standards of due process and evidence that are required in a regular court of law. Forced arbitration clauses also preempt workers and consumers from banding together to wage class action lawsuits. According to research by the Center for Progressive Reform, these clauses disproportionately hurt low-income workers of color and other historically marginalized communities. But the oppression of forced arbitration clauses may be starting to change. Congress recently passed the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act, which would bar forced arbitration from being imposed through contracts and allow claimants instead to seek justice in court. I spoke with M. Isabel Chowdhury, Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for Progressive Reform, about the legislation and about what more needs to be done to protect workers and consumers from forced arbitration. The Ending Forced Arbitration for Sexual Assault and Harassment Act specifically prohibits enforcement of pre-dispute arbitration agreements or joint action waivers in cases filed under federal, tribal, or state law that relate to sexual assault or sexual harassment, unless the person challenging the conduct or the named representative of a class or collective action elects to enforce the uh, agreement or waiver. So specifically, this bill was developed in the wake of the Me Too movement, and it is designed to address concerns that arbitration agreements are used to shield allegations of sexual harassment and assault from public disclosure and protect those accused of harassment and abuse. Generally speaking, an arbitration process is seen as less fair or less conducive to yielding a just outcome for the person complaining, right? Yes. Typically, forced arbitration favors corporations over those um, seeking to hold them accountable because arbitrators, you know, they work for the companies that are selected 
ahead of time by corporations. Um, Sometimes they have financial motives to rule against individuals. In general, the process doesn't require the arbitrator to follow the rules of evidence as um, they would in court. Uh, They're not required to explain their judgments and written opinions. They don't have to apply the law consistently. And often the arbitration award uh, cannot be overruled by a higher court. And then also, just to add, victims are prevented by corporations from bringing class action claims in arbitration. And who is most impacted by these forced arbitration clauses? Earlier this month, um, CPR published a report titled Private Courts Bias Outcomes, the Adverse Impact of Forced Arbitration on People of Color, Women, Low-Income Americans, and Nursing Home Residents. And as the title suggests, those are some of the folks that are most impacted by forced arbitration. But we highlight how forced arbitration impacts historically marginalized communities in ways that go beyond um, the adverse impacts of forced arbitration. So workers who are low income and people of color are more likely to be subject to forced arbitration uh, than other workers. They're also more likely to be victims of wage theft, less able to afford illegal losses in wages, Um, And also women and people of color, um, they're more likely to be subject to workplace discrimination than their white and male counterparts. They have fewer opportunities in forced arbitration than in a lawsuit to obtain evidence from employers to support discrimination claims. They face extreme difficulty proving patterns of sexual harassment because forced arbitration is secretive. Typically, uh, the parties sign a non-disclosure agreement and agree that whatever um, occurs during the process, it's private and it will not be disclosed to the general public. Barring other victims or people who could force change from seeing systemic problems, uh, and then, and then, lastly, they're they're more likely to be victims of implicit bias and subconscious discrimination because almost all arbitrators are white males. In general, hasn't it been getting harder for people to bring class action lawsuits, especially in cases of workplace disputes? Does forced arbitration just sort of further undermine access to justice in that regard? In that regard, it does, you know, preventing class actions prevents workers and, you know, people who've suffered like issues to band together and hold, whether it's the employer or, um, you know, a, a business accountable for issues that might be affecting a group of people. Overall, I mean, all these issues, obviously, wage theft, discrimination, sexual harassment, these are all workplace issues. Do you have a sense of how um, labor rights more broadly are affected by um, forced arbitration? I mean, it seems to be, it seems like this process is almost the opposite of um, of uh, union representation, which would be, I guess, the strongest way that workers um, have an advocate um, when 
they're faced with abuse. Um, but how does this affect things like, you know, collective bargaining rights or does it affect, you know, labor standards more broadly? That's a good question. I mean, for unionized workers, I'll just say that um, forced arbitration rules imposed on non-union low-wage workers are distinct from those negotiated through labor unions. Unionized workers can bargain with relatively equal negotiating power, and unions have more power to ensure that arbitration terms are advantageous to workers. So the fact that 80% of non-unionized workers will be forced to arbitrate highlights the significance of workers eroding bargaining power. Um, But in general, I'll I'll say that I know there was a, a study published by the Economic Policy Institute years ago that put out numbers saying that 60 million American workers were subject to pre-dispute arbitration agreements with their employers. And we know that more than 50% of all workers are subject to forced arbitration of employment disputes, and the percentage rises to 60 for those who work in um, for large employers. So this is a large number of the workforce who are and will be subject to forced arbitration. This is directly pertaining to sexual harassment and sexual assault, like sort of sex-based claims um, going into arbitration. So this legislation would address that, but uh, what about other types of grievances that workers may have, um, other sort of legal arenas in which um, workers will try to make claims to hold their employers accountable? there doesn't seem to be any law that protects workers in that respect from having forced arbitration imposed on them. So no worker, you know, whether their claim relates to sexual harassment, stolen wages, or illegal discrimination should be denied the right to pursue justice. But as the bill stands now, it is specifically geared to sexual assault and sexual harassment. Uh, we hope that it will be interpreted more broadly to cover other forms of discrimination. That's not clear yet, though. And there is, I think there is legislation pending for that, right? Yeah, the Fair Act um, would cover uh, a more broad Um, array of issues and and legal actions that workers can pursue against employers. That was M. Isabel Chowdhury, Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for Progressive Reform. That chant you just heard was from the end of the World Cup in 2019, when after the U.S. women's team won, again, The crowd across the stadium spontaneously erupted in the chant of equal pay. A lot of you probably know something about the women's fight for equal pay over the past several years. Perhaps you also know that this week they won. U.S. soccer agreed to a $24 million settlement that includes a promise to pay the women the same as the men in the future. The fight has dragged on for nearly six years since several of the U.S. women's star players filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission over wage discrimination. They alleged underpayment on bonuses, appearance fees, and even meals, and said they earned as little as 40% of what the men made. The U.S. men's team notably has never won a World Cup and last time didn't even qualify, while the U.S. women are world dominant. 
The Federation didn't help itself in its arguments, saying that the men brought in more money and higher television ratings, something which is untrue in the U.S., where the last Women's World Cup brought in 22% more viewers than the men's final. Alex Morgan, former co-captain of the women's national team, said... I think it was just extremely motivating to see organizations and employers admit their wrongdoing and us forcing their hand and making it right. The domino effect that we helped kickstart, I think we're really proud of it. While a judge in 2020 had dismissed the players' arguments, the players won in the court of public opinion, and U.S. soccer perhaps felt the need to settle or risk continued bad relationships with its most bankable stars. What we set out to do, Morgan told reporters, was to have acknowledgement of discrimination from U.S. soccer, and we received that through back pay in the settlement. We set out to have fair and equal treatment in working conditions, and we got that through the working conditions settlement. And we set out to have equal pay moving forward for us and the men's team through U.S. soccer, and we achieved that, end quote. The settlement will resolve all remaining claims in the 2019 lawsuit that the players filed, but it rests on the condition of the ratification of a new contract between U.S. soccer and the Women's Players Union. According to The Guardian, quote, that new contract is tied up in part because U.S. soccer president Cindy Cohn has insisted that the men's and women's national teams come together with the Federation to figure out the pesky problem of how to pay both national teams equally when FIFA's prize money for World Cups is hugely unequal, $440 million for the men in 2022 against a proposed $60 million for the women in 2023, end quote. This seems to me like it would be more of a problem if the U.S. men showed any likelihood of, you know, ever bringing home any of that prize money. Sorry, guys. Not sorry. And The Guardian also notes, quote, All parties that take women's soccer seriously would very much like FIFA to even out that prize money. Today, yesterday, it's money FIFA could afford to, considering the organization made around $3.5 billion in profit from the 2018 World Cup alone. End quote. Megan Rapino, of course, everybody's favorite star of the U.S. women's team, noted, We're not wondering if the women's game can make money. It's just willful discrimination and willful negligence. So the fight isn't entirely over, but will hinge on men's willingness to share their potential future earnings. Where have we heard that before, I wonder? Still, the success of this battle is a big deal and has had ramifications for sports the world over. Most of that $24 million is back pay for the players, and the commitment to equalize pay in future competitions means the next generation of players will not have to struggle as hard to succeed. It's notable that the campaign from the Players Union in the U.S. current and most successful Women's Professional Soccer League is titled No More Side Hustles. For players to do their best on the field, they argue, they need to be paid to be full-time athletes, not have to hold down three jobs. Today, we're continuing our series on the supply chain with an in-depth conversation about warehouses, Amazon, and well beyond, with Beth Gutelius, friend of the show and the research director of the Center for Urban Economic Development at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Her research focuses on the changing nature of employment, the evolution of the warehousing and distribution sector, and we discuss so-called labor shortages, the evolution of technological surveillance of warehouse workers, the history of warehouse work, and how tech companies get credit for innovation that isn't terribly innovative at all. So we've been talking about the so-called supply chain crisis here on Belabored for several weeks now. And so I wanted to start by sort of getting your short, hot take on what we mean by supply chain crisis. Mm. I mean, I think we can think of supply chains as these 
you know, very extended networks of businesses, which, um, you know, businesses are employers and workers uh, stretched around the globe. And each node has its own kind of set of responsibilities. Um, but crucially, they are all interconnected, um, both by the goods that are moving through them and by the technologies that coordinate them. Um, and so when, when any of those things kind of gets, um, when, when there's a hiccup, uh, there's a ripple effect and you end up seeing, as, as we have seen, um, you know, a, a hiccup at one point um, has reverberations both directions, both forward and backward. So, you know, at a port, you have reverberations toward the warehouse and um, you also have reverberations back up the production chain. So that's my quick hot, that's my opinion of what a supply chain is. And I guess, well, and I guess logistics, um, if we, if we talk, if we're talking about logistics, I would say, you know, logistics is really responsible for the, the coordination of the movement of, of the goods through the supply chain. So we are seeing this, this supply chain crisis, quote unquote, again, um, after the pandemic, during the pandemic, I guess it's not over. Um, and so what has been the effect of the pandemic specifically on warehouses and warehouse work, since this is one of your areas of focus? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll state the obvious. Um, when the lockdowns came into effect in March 2020, um, many of us, those of us who could work remotely or switch to working remotely did so uh, and stayed at home. And those of us who were essential workers continued to show up in person for our jobs. And those of us who were at home um, started to shop online in droves. Um, the you know the rates of online shopping uh, skyrocketed even after you know there's been a steady increase in, in e-commerce over the last ten years, but um, it, it really skyrocketed during the pandemic. And um, so workers had to report to fulfill those orders. Um, and so you know in the end, warehousing was kind of a bright spot in the economy during the pandemic. You know while we saw employment in manufacturing, restaurant work, hospitality, all these other industries um, saw a net decline and um, warehousing, you know, continued to climb during that time. And at the same time, you know, I think we heard a lot of reports about um, the dangers of showing up for work in a pandemic and logistics workers and warehouse workers were, were obviously very hard hit by that. Um, the rate, I read a report out of California that said the rate of mortality increased for logistics workers by 28% during the pandemic. Um, so we really saw some very real repercussions of um, both the, you know, the, the lax um, uh, enforcement of health guidelines, uh, the lack of protective, personal protective equipment um, and social distancing, which, which can be difficult. I think in a warehouse, you know, you have these kind of cramped environments um, to some extent, or, or choke points within the warehouse where, where there are going to be workers sort of meeting each other and, and having to really navigate how to stay six feet away from each other. So, so I think we both saw, you know, employment was strong. Um, workers kept going to work uh, because they had to, um, to support their families. Um, and we saw some very nominal um, sort of declarations of their heroism uh, both in terms of semantics, you know, people saying, oh, these are essential workers are heroes. And, um, but, but very little sort of material um, evidence uh, that, that employers thought that was the case. We saw very short-term hazard pay bumps um, and, and nothing that really stuck. And I think in the end, you know, I think this is like fast forward a year and a half, two years, and, and we wonder why the great resignation, you know, is in full effect. We wonder why 
um, workers who sort of had this moment of cognitive dissonance where they were being told they were heroes and yet they showed up for work, um, you know, feeling like their working conditions remained substandard as they were before the pandemic. And I think there was a real moment of, um, of reckoning. And, and I think that's what we're seeing now in, in more broadly in the labor market, but also in warehousing. Yeah. Has the great resignation, I know it's hard to get data. I've been trying, yeah. um, but how have we seen this sort of this great resignation playing out in the warehouse sector? Well, I'm, I'm actually doing um, a couple different studies right now where I'm in the field talking to employers. Um, every single one of them says that um, A, it's hard to find workers. B, they've had to raise wages. Um, wages are up for the you know, in in record numbers, wages are up in warehousing. But this is also an industry where the wages in 2021, that's last year, that's during the pandemic, were lower than they were in 1990 when you adjust for inflation. So worker, warehouse workers in 2021 are making less than they were in 1990. Um, so yeah, it was it was probably about time for some upward pressure <laughs> on those wages. Um, yeah. And and so you know, warehouse um, warehouse operators are having to um, to raise wages now, and I think that's in part because of Amazon. Uh, you know, Amazon raises wages; they compete in the same labor markets as most of most other warehouse operators, um, and that ends up um, you know placing pressure on on the on a tight already tight labor market. Yeah, we will get to the question of those wages being higher in 1990 than they were. Um, but I wanted to sort of get you to give us a, an abbreviated history. Once again, I'm asking you these really huge questions right up front. I'm sorry. Um, but an abbreviated history of sort of warehousing in the U.S. and its relationship to the globalization of production. Yeah. I mean, you know, wh when when globalization really started to take off in, in the 1980s and we really saw deindustrialization um, start to take hold in cities um, when corporations were in some ways incentivized um, by the government, but also incentivized by their own falling profit margins to move production overseas, to, to seek cheaper labor, basically, um, overseas. So the factories moved, um, the factories went offshore, and the warehouses stayed and proliferated. So really warehousing, you know, as we know it today, was born in the wake of deindustrialization. And many of the, you know, warehousing jobs were really positioned as an antidote to the destruction of the manufacturing sector. Um, so we really saw it take off, you know, in, in the 90s um, as companies with these very long supply chains obviously needed to kind of stage goods um, between the, you know, points of production and consumption. So what I say about warehouses all the time is they are basically the, the fulcrum of supply and demand. Um, which makes them a very critical part of firms' competitive strategies um, and obviously of supply chain. So it's, it's you know, in an ideal world, goods come from wherever they come from and, you know, they are produced and moved at the exact right moment and, you know, when a consumer wants them. Um, that is a very difficult thing in practice to achieve, despite, you know, <laughs> valiant attempts on the part of many companies to do so. Um, so the warehouse ends up playing this role of calibrating that supply and demand. Right. And the, the, the history of warehouse work is also obviously interconnected with longshore work, transportation, trucking, all of these things that um, we've talked about a little bit in other episodes of the show um, and of unionization and union busting in the field. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was just um, rereading um, a chapter that Shahari Arkowski, who's a um, 
an organizer in Southern California wrote, and he was pointing out that um, in, you know, that, that the Teamsters organizing in, in trucking and warehousing sectors and different supply chain sectors was going really strong, you know, in the 30s and 40s. Um, and the, it was going strong in part because they were able to use secondary pickets um, to kind of pressure companies to allow them to come in and unionize places that sort of sat at the intersection of a, a unionized trucking sector and in, say, a non-unionized warehousing sector or warehousing firm. And they would use those secondary pickets um, to put pressure on the companies to then allow them to unionize. And, um, you know, then Taft-Hartley happened, you know, I think that was 1947, um, which banned the secondary picket. And it's like, you know, there are a series of things right over time, policy decisions, organizing decisions that have um, weakened uh, the ability of labor to to gain collective bargaining agreements. And, you know, I think there's there's a lot of reasons why warehousing you know, sits at a very low uh, density of unionization today. I think it's at 6%, which is the, you know, obviously the private industry average, but, you know, it was 28%, you know, in the 80s. Um, so we've really seen a steep drop. There are many accounts and, and many um, theories about supply chain organizing, I think, um, that really focus on this question of choke points and how you leverage choke points along to do supply chain organizing um, and and try to you know connect in the way that these workers are already connected um, to try to, to run organizing campaigns that would do the same thing um, and and leverage maybe power positional power in one place in order to organize in other places that in practice has been um, very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, so when we're looking at this again, this history and things like Taft-Hartley come along, but then um, in the 80s, we start to get Walmart and Walmart's sort of big innovation that that now I think people forget about was, was the move from it being the warehouse to the quote unquote distribution center. So I wonder if you could talk about sort of this change from these warehouses as places where things were stored for maybe a while to places where things move very, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think Walmart was um, in some ways taking a page from like the auto manufacturing industry. You know, I think they really adopted the the just-in-time or lean production systems, um, which is sort of this theory of supply chain management that um, basically tried to orchestrate everything and take all of the waste out of a process. And so what I was saying before about, you know, a part arriving at the factory or a, you know, a product arriving exactly when it's needed. This was the kind of Toyota production system. Um, and so I think this in some ways is what Walmart was trying to institute, but in a retail context. Um, this is you know, pre, pre-e-commerce, really. And so they were basically trying to figure out how they could make their, um, their supply chain, but, but especially their, their logistics practices, um, kind of a new realm of comp- competitive, like a new competitive market. Like, how do we compete? Um, how do we make our logistics practices beat our competitors? And I think they did this in, in many different ways. But one of the things that I think they, they really experimented with was outsourcing and insourcing, right? They, it was all a lot of experimentation, right? It's like, okay, which, which particular geographies do we want to outsource? Are there particular products that we don't want to handle that we think someone else should be handling. So there's been all of these different iterations on how to make the supply chain 
you know, as efficient as possible, basically. And I think um, Walmart did that in part through leveraging its power and, um, and really kind of disciplining its suppliers, whether that was its, you know, some product suppliers or its logistics services providers um, into very narrow constraints. And, you know, so in, we think about like 2012 or so, um, there was some very concerted organizing happening uh, in the Walmart supply chain because of the um, our Walmart campaign. We saw some strikes happen in California and in Chicago. Uh, and it was really the first time, you know, that we'd seen that in the industry, these kind of coordinated strikes and, and really trying to draw the connection between Walmart as the, you know, as the real, what, what organizers saying, were saying was the real employer, um, but they were outsourcing their logistics operations um, to these subcontractors, which, by the way, is a very common um, practice in warehousing. Roughly half of the warehousing market is outsourced. So this question of kind of um, who are the, you know, the lead firm and who kind of holds the power, uh, these are very, very active questions still, you know, and something that I think Walmart really kind of pioneered, you know, many decades ago. Yeah, I just wanted to to ask you to sort of pause a little bit and talk about the way that that subcontracting, which again is is happening in lots of sectors now, um, has been become so widespread in warehousing. How it mm-hmm. allows companies like Walmart um, to control yet disavow control over the labor process. Yeah, I think this is a really key question. Um, you know, like I said, about half of the warehousing, warehousing market is outsourced. Um, so we have the outsourcing of actual logistics operations on the one hand. That is obviously a major trend in warehousing. And the second outsourcing that happens is the hiring of temporary staffing agencies to supply labor to warehouses. Um, so I'll start with the first. I mean, there are, you know, I've been researching this industry for 13, 14 years now, I've done tons of interviews with both third-party logistics providers. Those are the ones, those are the subcontracted logistics providers and the people who hire them. So that's the brand, you know, Target or or Walmart or whoever else. Um, And there does not seem to be uh, a formula, right? It's not like, oh, well, you're going to outsource because of X and you're not going to outsource because of Y. Um, I think companies have a range of different uh, reasons or motivations for outsourcing. Yet, um, I think one of the major ones that comes up over and over again is the question of labor. Um, you, I, I'll interview 3PL, third-party logistics companies, who will say, um, well, we're basically a glorified labor broker, or we sell labor. So, someone said that to me last week. We sell labor. Um, and I think that's a really um, telling a bit of honesty, mm, um, because yeah. I think in so many ways, you know, the the act of outsourcing and warehousing, you know, often does revolve around the question of liability. Um, sometimes it's about cost too. It's definitely like these are not you know sort of mutually exclusive, but um, it's an industry with elevated health and safety risks. Um, it's an in, it's an industry where you know workers comp uh, workers compensation is uh, is a major consideration and um, those costs are a major consideration and it's an industry where in general um you know if we look at a supply chain uh, lead firms the firms that have the power are trying to move risk away from them that is part of what supply that is part of why supply chains exist and so this is part of why you know so much outsourcing in so much so many of these outsourcing relationships 
you see the risk in different ways being pushed further and further away from that lead firm. And in the case of warehousing, you watch it get pushed, you know, from the the firm itself out into the warehouse, um, the outsourced warehouse, and then even further out into a temporary staffing agency. So in the end, you see this risk um, that, you know, should sort of be held by the firm that is reaping the most benefits. You see that risk being pushed down and out into local labor markets in the end. That's that's where it ends up residing. Right. And and that ends up falling on the people who are doing the work, right? So they are the ones ultimately bearing the burden of of literally going to work in a pandemic and getting sick. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think... I think when we look at um, at temping, it's in some ways it's hard to know the extent of temping in this industry because of the way the federal government has decided to track um, employment in these different industries, which is really frustrating. And it's something I've been hammering on for years. Um, but it's like, how do we get a real um, true sense of both employment and, and wages and working conditions in an industry that, that extensively uses temporary staffing agencies. You know, there are major wage penalties between um, direct hire and temp workers that, you know, that's a longstanding, you know, there's a lot of evidence um, around wage penalties, around um, that health and safety risks are elevated for temporary workers. You know, I'm going to go on a tiny bit of a tangent here. Um, the Edwardsville, Illinois, Amazon warehouse that was leveled by, by a tornado um, late last year, um, you know, one of the things that I thought was so, um, I'm going to say interesting, but in, in a tragic, you know, obviously in a tragic way, is that, um, you know, someone brought up the, the point that so many of the workers there, and these are the drivers, not the warehouse workers, but the drivers were independent contractors. And when you think about warehouses and the kind of turnover that exists, the kind of temporary staffing, you know, the labor regimes that exist, in cases where you have that kind of churn, it's very difficult to make sure that everyone in the warehouse is up to speed on, for example, um, the safety drills, right? The, the safety policies, things like that. What do you do in the case of a, you know, a tornado? Um, and so I think these are the ways where we don't immediately think of like, oh, temporary staffing, you know, that has we think of it as having having you know effects on wages which it does but there are this there's a whole set of follow-on effects that happen um when you really separate the workers who are doing the work from you know the company that is um reaping the the benefits of that work yeah sorry for that tension yeah. no no no, no. It's, <laughs> it's a really important one right because yeah the the question of how what kind of training people get when they come into these places right is, is exactly often um, minimal and focused on productivity rather than on safety, comfort, where the bathroom is, et cetera. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're not going to be there, right? They're going to be gone in a week or a month. And um, that sort of disposability uh, ends up having obviously very grave impacts. Right. You said that when we spoke before for an article, um, you mentioned that sort of every minute that something spends in the warehouse, is, its value is not being added, right? That that so warehousing is something at every juncture where, where employers are going to be trying to squeeze everything out of it because like ultimately it's a step they wish they didn't have to take at all. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of the the rub, right? Like this is the kind of the fundamental rub of the warehousing industry. If you're calibrating supply and demand and um, supp- uh, demand, sorry, is is variable because consumers decide one day to, you know, buy a shit ton of toilet paper and you couldn't predict it, um, then obviously, you know, your, your model uh, is going to be a little broken after that. So yeah, it's an area where um, that has long been seen as um, of sort of little value. You think about like the transformation of a product, you know, as it moves through its, you know, assembly process or whatever, at each stage, it's sort of gaining value toward the, you know, the final profit that you can realize on the finished product. Um, But the finished product arrives at the warehouse and sits there. Um, So in some ways, you know, holding that inventory is a cost, paying the workers, uh, you know, to watch over it is a cost or to move it twice, you know, while it's while it's going to be sitting there. And so, yeah, I think this is a place where we've really seen um, a, a lot of scrutiny around cost. And I think this has a lot of um, I mean, this is this this informs the kinds of labor strategies that are used. Um, it also informs. I mean, I think of warehouses more and more as these um, highly engineered environments. And this is sort of at the at the more sophisticated level. There are also plenty of warehouses that are not sophisticated and not highly engineered. But you think about the ones that um, that we, you know, a lot of the e-commerce warehouses probably have to be like this. Um, but environments where at every um, point in in the entire building, in the facility, um, you're trying to squeeze out, quote unquote, waste. You're trying to improve the efficiency of every process, every task, every worker movement. And it's sort of the, I mean, it's it's where, you know, digital tailor, it's where Taylorism um, comes into play, right? Taylor, Frederick Taylor was this management consultant, like the granddaddy of management consultants in the late 1800s who, um, kind of became obsessed with standardizing and scrutinizing um, movements of the movements of workers. And so he gave birth to scientific workforce management, um, which is where people do these engineers come in and do these watch a worker and do these time and motion studies. So every little move they make is timed. Um, and that's how you come up with engineered labor standards, which are very prevalent in, in warehouses. Um, so you have these very highly engineered environments that are where everything is basically being scrutinized. And then, you know, more recently, we can add technology on top of that, which I think we're going to talk about. But like one of the, can I, can I do a little tangent on engineered labor standards though? I've just been, I've been thinking about them a lot lately. I was reading an interview recently um, with a neuroscientist in The Sun magazine, one of my favorite magazines. And the interviewer asked, like, it was his closing question. And he's like, okay, how, how is humanity being changed by the pandemic? And one of the things that the neuroscientist said is, well, everyone has slowed down. We're getting less done. We're being less productive. There's this like collective lethargy in the air. I felt very seen reading this, but then my mind kind of wandered um, to engineered labor standards, uh, which it often does. But I thought about how, um, you know, you ha- you often have these industrial engineers on site in a warehouse that is that is like there to squeeze every last bit out. And this isn't to say that they're always successful, right? Like, but that's the goal. And there they are constantly seeking these gains. Um, and yet here we are <laughs> in this slowdown, in this collective lethargy. 
but but the engineered labor standards are relentless you know they're not they're not changing and so we had this kind of collision on a societal you know scale of this like you have uncertainty and anxiety and upheaval on on the one hand which is kind of slowing us down and on the other hand you have these productivity requirements that cannot account for that that are like built to not account for that um and then we wonder why like warehouse operators are having a hard time finding workers right right i mean i think that this is something that that's really striking right that that sort of capitalism requires human bodies but it also can't accommodate human bodies <laughs> and that's sort of the fundamental tension at the core of the entire damn thing hmm. oh, yeah that's that i mean i think like that could be a segue into our conversation about technology yeah no absolutely warehousing <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think ideally and i think a lot of the sort of hyperbole around technology and warehousing um, is that we are we are just around the corner from dark warehouses that are just humming along, you know, with a couple of maintenance people and otherwise there are no no humans in there. Um, I am here to tell you we are very far from that. <laughs> um, I don't doubt that that's the goal. Um, this but this industry has been very slow to adopt technologies. I mean, even the even very basic technologies, warehouse management systems, for example, it's just like the software that coordinates you know, when stuff comes in, it gets recorded in the system and it's how orders, you know, kind of get coordinated on the floor. Um, a recent survey said that, you know, two thirds of warehouses have one, but that means that a third of warehouses have no electronic system for, for tracking goods. I mean, that is striking and you can't do any kind of other technology, hardware or software without a warehouse management system. Um, so you've cut out a third right there. Um, of warehouses that are that are very very slow to adopt even the most basic technologies. I mean, even handheld you know barcode scanners. I mean, not, they're now ubiquitous, but even those have been slow to proliferate. Um, so I think um, this is an industry that tends to be like slow slow to adopt those things in part because of what I was saying earlier about margins being low, about it being a place that is not seen as a place for investment, but a place to cut constantly cut costs uh, and increase efficiencies. Um, and sort of squeeze waste out. So then, I mean, so we had this these trends of kind of slow technology adoption, um, but we also have outliers, right? Amazon is a clear outlier. They have been very fast to um, experiment with and adopt on a wide scale new technologies, both hardware and software. And I think, um, you know, both the the sort of innovation, I'm, I'm using quotes, but it is innovation, of Amazon, but also the the rise of e-commerce in general um, has really pushed uh, warehouse operators in the industry to um, to at least increase their interest in adopting new technologies and start start and start experimenting with new technologies. But um, I think we're still at an early stage of adoption. Yeah. All of that yeah. said, the pandemic definitely accelerated that. Yeah. Yeah. When we spoke before about Amazon specifically, um, you used the term retrogressive innovation for Amazon's labor practices, which I love. So can you explain to our listeners what do you mean by that term and why we sort of shouldn't fall for these promises of these super high-tech warehouses that are run by robots? Yeah. I mean, to me, retrogressive innovation is about, it's a very old school um, attempt to squeeze productivity out of workers 
but overlaid with a, you know, a shiny technology on top. Um, so, you know, like I was talking about Taylorism, which is just, is really a, an, a very old school, uh, late 19th century method of squeezing productivity out of workers. Um, that is the underpinning for what, you know, the systems that Amazon uses. Um, and so you have this like real throwback to the kind of, um, you know, the kind of labor management that, you know, we saw, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, a uh, hundred years ago anyway. And, um, but, but then you, you kind of have this, um, this fancy newfangled technology over the top. Um, and, and it looks a little bit, you know, maybe more humane or, uh, maybe, you know, this is, this is what we should think of as innovation, right? Like that's what they want us to think. Right. Right. Um, and in reality, I think, I mean, I think when we think about how technology could change things, um, we want to think about all the positives and, and many times, you know, technology companies and Amazon and many companies in general will say, well, um, we're going to adopt these new technologies so that we can um, reduce the the sort of rote, mundane tasks that workers are doing and reallocate their labor towards more complex, more interesting um, tasks and activities. That's like the goal, right? That is not what is happening. <laughs> it is not at all what's happening. Retrogressive innovation basically means that, um, in, that in some ways these technologies are, are able to take out some of the worst parts of these jobs. Let's take the, the Amazon Kiva robot as an example. Um, instead of a worker now walking 12 miles a day, which they may have done before, now the robot is moving those 12 miles but, and they're bringing the goods to the worker. So in some ways that is that that could be seen as a gain. The problem is that as that is being implemented, the, those um, potential gains or potential quality improvements are being implemented. You have this productivity system laid on top of it, which removes all of the gains that we just made and introduces a whole new set of health and safety risks and um, and just like anxiety levels because the productivity level has basically been ratcheted up. Uh, through the roof uh, in order to try to, again, make this process as efficient as possible. So I think, you know, the, the real issue with tech, new technology and warehouses is that on the one hand, we do have the opportunity to improve the quality of, the, of these jobs. And in reality, um, the way, the choices that employers are making about how these technologies get implemented is actually um, reducing job quality. It's making job quality even worse. Yeah, and that I think is the the way. Um, I think another term that we used in that last conversation was cyborg Taylorism, um, <laughs> and the way that this tech, but the the way that this tech sort of really acts on the worker's body in these really sort of horrifying ways sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think there. Any any of us who have who read the news and Amazon pops up, like it's usually Amazon um, being raked over the coals about you know workers not being able to use the bathroom and and feeling you know one thing that I think is really interesting when I released the report in 2019 late 2019 with my colleague Nick Theodore about automation and new technologies and warehousing at the time it was very clear that um, we did not know enough about the psychological impacts of these technologies. 
and um, that we really needed to try to understand that. And since then, there have been a couple of studies uh, and it, it's not good. I mean, it's not too surprising. I think that working under these systems um, where you're, you know, you're not sure, you know, A, you may not be sure what your, what your productivity um, quotas are and B, you don't know what's going to happen if you don't meet them because, you know, an algorithm is not trained to um, be compassionate or empathetic or understand that your newborn was up all night and that's why you didn't meet your rate today. Um, and so I think there is this whole layer of psychological impacts that we don't yet know enough about. The health and safety impacts, I think, are becoming increasingly clear um, in that, you know, Amazon's injury rate um, is much, much higher than the industry average. Talking about the way that technology is used theoretically to save certain labor um, or to reallocate that labor, what's interesting is, of course, like one of the things that the technology is doing is often replacing a layer of management or at least certain management tasks rather than replacing um, the sort of hardest and most brutal work. Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely ways, you know, when I've done the research into different technologies, um, a lot of them have these these dashboards, right, that uh, end up collating all of this data that maybe in the past you would have had a manager walking around the warehouse with a clipboard um, or maybe even checking in with workers and asking them how they're doing, right? Like it's having some human interaction there. Instead, um, you know, you have hardware that speaks to software that captures all of this data and presents it um, to a manager. But it's true that, that I think, um, you know, managers will, these sort of mid-level managers or warehouse managers will certainly not be exempt from, um, from losing their, potentially losing their jobs because um, I think it's definitely a, a question of a simplification of that, of some of those tasks for sure. Right. Another thing that, that um, I wanted to touch on was this question, and I think this is related to these questions of the body and physicality, is, is the sort of feminization of warehouse work, right? That in a lot of these, particularly, again, Amazon warehouses, um, a lot of these, the workers are women now in a way that this used to be a very, you know, the, the image of the warehouse worker is probably still like a big burly man with a box on mm -hmm. his back. And now it's very different. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, when we look at the statistics on, on the workforce, um, the gender breakdown has been pretty stubborn at 75%-ish male, 25%-ish female for decades. Um, and a lot of the, even you know women who do work in the industry are much more likely to be in clerical roles than they are you know sort of on the shop floor moving boxes around. Um, and e-commerce is really shifting that um, that statistic. It's much closer to last I checked, it was much closer to sixty-five male, um, fifth, uh, forty-five, whatever the math is, forty-five percent <laughs> female. Um, and at the same time, that I think in these big e-commerce facilities where women are more likely to be working, I think there's also emerging evidence that that that's actually where working conditions um, are are the worst in many ways and where wages are lower. So it's, as we've seen in many other industries, the feminization means working conditions get even worse and pay goes down. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really important thing, you know, to bring up here, but then also just to kind of watch over time. Right. Yeah. I, I think that, well, again, we know this 
as the way it goes in so many other places. Um, so it shouldn't be that surprising. But I do think it connects to the technology, right? There's this idea that now like the work isn't as hard because there's all this technology when in practice, like repetitive stress injuries are just as bad as heavy lifting injuries. Mm, yeah, geez. Yeah, the musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal um, injuries are, are, I mean, that's the stuff that doesn't heal. You know, that's the stuff that, that sticks with you uh, for a very, very long time, long after you're no longer even able to work in that facility anymore. Um, so yeah, I think the long-term effects here um, are are really important to to think about and act on. So how is the pandemic, we touched on this briefly, but I want to expand on it a little bit. How has the pandemic sort of accelerated all of this surveillance and control of warehouse workers? Yeah, I think it's, it's both been um, a product of the tight labor market that's kind of come in the wake of the pandemic now um, and the kind of uncertainty, um, heightened volumes that happened in a lot of warehouses during the pandemic. Um, and so you see warehouse operators basically trying to figure out, again, with this focus on cost containment, how do you, you know, what, what kinds of investments could they make um, to hedge their bets against these things in the future? Um, and, and, I mean, to deal with a very real problem of trying to get workers and, and keep them. Um, and so what I think, you know, as I said, technology um, is moving most quickly in e-commerce environments. And that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, the e-commerce picking process, like the, the order picking process is much more labor intensive. By some accounts, it three, takes three times the amount of labor to pick an e-commerce order uh, versus a more traditional, say, case picking, like a whole picking a whole box of things. Um, so it's both the, um, the, the process, but also the speed, right? I mean, Amazon has conditioned us and disciplined us to believe that we need things, you know, in a very short turnaround time. And so the velocity of order fulfillment is also much faster. Um, and so I think those are those are some of the reasons why e in e-commerce we really see a leading edge in in interest in technology, but it's not isolated to that. Um, I think uh, even more broadly, again, the kind of the crisis with with labor right now is is you know encouraging I guess employers to examine what their options are. I think the other big and this might be too in the weeds, but I think it's really interesting. The financing models for these technologies has shifted. So whereas in the past, let's say you wanted to buy like a big, you know, a big conveyor system to move boxes around the warehouse and cut out walking. Um, well, now you can buy a bunch of these, um, they're called autonomous mobile robots, and they're kind of standalone little, you know, robotic um, trays that move around a warehouse and they have a similar, I mean, they similarly take out a lot of walking on the part of workers. Um, but these systems, A, they, um, they're offered on a lease basis. So, you know, you can lease 12 of them, try them out. If they don't work, you give them back. Um, and you can also then flex them up and down much more, I mean, much more easily than you can flex a, a you know, a conveyor belt that's bolted to the floor. You can't flex that. You can't even really make it you know, run much faster, let alone, you know, like try to meet these like peaks and, and valleys in demand. And so when you have these like AMRs, autonomous mobile robots, where they're leased, so the capital investment 
you know, is less upfront, but you can also flex up and down the same way that, that warehouse employers are often trying to flex labor up and down during peak seasons to try to uh, match demand volume, you know, the, the um, demand volumes. Um, that is exactly what these um, leased robots are allowed to do. I think, honestly, I think that is a game changer. You know, I think the, the, the financing structure, the capital outlays for technology have been a major barrier in this industry um, to technology adoption. And as that changes, I mean, that th- those leasing options are not available on all, you know, all systems. But for the ones um, where you can lease them, I think we're going to see a lot faster adoption than I would have said, you know, four years ago before those options existed. And then once you've leased it, you have to make it pay for itself. Uh-huh. You do. <laughs> Got to get that ROI. Uh, go back to read the Grundrisa. Anyway, um, the, um, so but the, one of the other things that happens with the warehouses and with those shorter delivery times is that the warehouse is not so easy to close down and move somewhere else, right? Amazon can't just shut the, the Bessemer warehouse because the workers there keep demanding a union election. They need to have those places where they're going to be delivering. And so that does offer interesting possibilities for disruption. It does. I'll give you that. It does. (laughs) Um, Yes, they are. These are like, this is still very much a geographically based um, industry. It is tethered in many ways. Um, But what companies have done, and I will, you know, Amazon, I think has, has been out front in this realm as well, is to build in all kinds of redundancies they understand just as well as anybody else, the theory of choke points. Um, and I think they have built, you know, so many different kinds of redundancies into their supply chain um, that then make sure like they make it, it, it's still hard to shut down the Bessemer warehouse for sure and move it. That's a huge capital investment, but um, you know, it makes a, a strike uh, a much easier thing to sort of deal with um, and keep your inventory moving than it used to. Right. You would have to strike a lot of places and a lot of. uh... Yeah, it has to be coordinated. Yeah. One other thing on that, and I think this is actually important and it's like a little, um, it's like a little shout out for the researchers. Um, You would have to strike in a lot of places and the right places. So you have to know which goods and which facility, you know what I mean? It's like, to understand the relationships between different facilities. Um, mm. And that's, this is in some ways what I, I mean, I don't, I don't study Amazon in particular. I study the industry and I talk to a lot of Amazon's competitors and that's why I know things about Amazon mostly. Um, <laughs> right. And so I think, but I think, you know, like zooming out a little bit, like my, um, my goal is to try to draw some of these connections, right. In, in terms of like, the working conditions, the structure of the industry, the ownership and the financing. So sorry, I'm just like giving researchers a shout out. (laughs) No, 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 exactly. Um, So one of the things obviously that we've seen in the last year is plenty of supply chain disruptions, right? And, And sort of, I guess to close, sort of what have we learned from, again, the supply chain crisis writ large, whatever that has meant, whether it's the ever given being stuck in the canal, um, shout out to my favorite moment of 2021, and, or, you know, any of these, you know, or the boats piling up in Long Beach. Um, you know, what have we learned that we can, that sort of workers can make use of, I guess, again, um, shouting out to the researchers. 
what have, <laughs> what have we learned from this moment of, of disruption and complication in these global supply chains? Um, that's a great question. Um, I also thought that the ever, like the memes around the ever given were, it was like a dream come true for like yeah. logistics nerds. Yeah. We never get memes and suddenly we had memes. <laughs> it was amazing. It was an amazing moment. Um, yeah. <clears throat> what have we learned? I mean, I think we've learned a lot about the precariousness of this system, of, of these systems. I think, you know, in a lot of the literature and, and even just sort of common thinking, when people think at all about um, supply chains, it's sort of this well-oiled machine and it's very synchronized and digitized and smoothly functioning. And and it's true that, yes, there has been a lot of digitization and new technologies have helped coordinate supply chains. But there is a, there is a fantasy there, I think, that um, very much butts up against frictions, um, like actual real frictions in the supply chain. And I think, you know, I was listening, I don't know if you ever, if you listen to this, um, Bloomberg has this podcast, the Odd Lots podcast, and they did this whole series on on the supply chain disruptions. And they were interviewing a guy in trucking and he was like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, yeah, people think of trucking as this really like well-oiled, resilient machine. They don't know that it rests on the fact that you might happen to know a guy who knows a guy who can get your load from point A to point B. But it really stands in stark contrast, I think, to how we think about supply chains when we think of them. Um, and so <laughs> I think, you know, yeah, those of us who've been studying supply chains, it's this moment of like, you don't know, this is what we've been saying, right? Like they're, they're, they're brittle. <laughs> they break easily. Um, and I don't know what that, you know, that's a learning, I guess, but it's also um, like, I don't want to go too much down the road of like fetishizing choke points, which is a very popular thing to do. Um, because in the end, it, yes, that is structural power, um, but it rests on associational power. Like there, there is power to disrupting a point in a supply chain and it can definitely, you know, change the power dynamics. Um, but until there is actual associational power among workers along the supply chain, um, then then it sort of remains a theory. It means a it remains a very beautiful, um, elegant theory. And um, I mean, I think there's more support for organizing both unions and just like worker organizing, uh, you know, more independent worker organizing. Than there has been in decades. Um, I think the question is is how we maintain that kind of momentum when the the labor market is going to shift. The power is probably going to move back towards employers, just as it was. And yet, people are changed and have been changed. Humanity is is qualitatively different, you know, and workers are qualitatively different. All of us having been through a pandemic, and um, so I mean. I'm never the most hopeful person in the room, but um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do think that like the coming together of these real, like real moments of cognitive dissonance, um, along with people who are really serious about worker organizing right now. I don't know. It 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 gives me some hope. I gotta say. <laughs> You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. 
Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Beth Gutilius, Research Director for the Center for Urban Economic Development at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, in which we talk about the pieces that we read and liked but didn't write. My pick for ARG is my life as an ER doctor during COVID. People walk in, throw their garbage at you, and walk out by Eugene Na. Now, this isn't exactly an ARG because I know that I couldn't have written a piece like this because it's written by a doctor, but I thought it was worth highlighting anyway. So it's been almost two years since the public made an evening ritual out of thanking our healthcare workers with a standing ovation every night with the sound of grateful applause ringing through cities around the world. But at this point in the pandemic, the sound of clapping has since yielded to the din of everyday chaos that has become the new normal at our hospitals and clinics. And in fact, instead of showing their appreciation, patients are now increasingly likely to show their contempt and anger at healthcare workers, and the workers are scared. As frayed nerves and anxieties lead to outbursts of rage in the emergency room, frontline healthcare personnel are typically on the receiving end of this anger, and like many workers in the so-called care industries, like childcare workers or nursing home aides, they are obligated by the rules of their profession or by a personal sense of duty, to absorb the anger and violence that people throw at them. Na, who is a physician, describes a tense incident in which a man had an angry outburst and threatened to return to the ER with a gun. The police refused to send backup security to the hospital, and Na called a meeting of the staff. Quote, When he comes, we will only have a couple of minutes. The patients who can walk, we take with us. The ones who can't, we close their doors and throw cart, stretcher, whatever we can find in front. We have to get to safety before he breaks into the main ER. Don't dally, I said. He left through the ambulance bay, so he knows it's there, one of the nurses chimed. She was right. The last thing I'd want was to come face to face with the shooter while trying to make my way out. What about the med room, I asked. No, the door has glass. He can just shoot through it, another nurse retorted. Right, then how do we get out? The back door, they said in unison. This huddle was our first time gathering to discuss the matters of our life and death, yet it did not feel spur of the moment. All of us have been thinking about this exact scenario for months. I first noticed the shift about a year ago. Our New York State patients were accustomed to modern facilities and efficiency, and they did not always adjust well to the new realities of the pandemic. Some dealt with their disappointment by pacing, yelling, and cursing until they got their way. Others with more clout called administrators they had on their speed dial, unquote. Nat observes how the pandemic has changed hospital practices in a way that often grates on patients' nerves and escalates tensions. Quote, triage, once a routine process to assess the patient's acuity, evolved into a dangerous task since it's come to include questions about COVID-19 symptoms, exposure, and vaccination. Nurses now had to brace themselves for unpredictable reactions, unquote. There are some parts of this narrative that are hard to read, particularly the instances when hospital staff felt that they had to resort to calling for police protection after a confrontation. The root causes of these issues need to be remedied not through law enforcement, of course, but through improved social services, comprehensive treatment access, and economic security for the surrounding community. Not coincidentally, these are also interventions that would help prevent a lot of the health problems that drive people to the emergency room to begin with. Still, I was surprised to read that violent attacks on healthcare staff are so frequent, and 
were on the rise even before the pandemic and are now apparently spiking. Na writes, quote, last year when 7,411 adults were surveyed, it transpired that healthcare workers were 50% more likely than others to have been harassed, bullied, or hurt as a result of COVID-19, unquote. According to a survey by National Nurses United, which represents a largely female frontline workforce, quote, nearly a third of nurses, 31%, reported that workplace violence recently increased. And according to WebMD Health News, the union reports that, quote, nurses and nurses' aides are five times more likely than any other type of worker in any industry to be victims of workplace violence, unquote. And it seems quite likely that gender plays a big role in that. A recent bill passed in the House called the Workplace Violence Prevention for Healthcare and Social Service Workers Act might help. It would require that healthcare providers institute workplace violence prevention plans. But Na adds, the changes may not be coming fast enough to stop the exodus of burned out healthcare workers, unquote. And that's the second layer of tragedy behind the brutality and day-to-day abuse that healthcare workers suffer. Many are, quite reasonably, deciding that they just can't take it anymore. And in turn, healthcare resources are stretched even thinner and workplace stress intensifies as people leave the profession. The lack of a voice in the workplace and the erosion of union power overall might also be factors. The point of this piece is not to show that doctors and nurses and other staff have good reason to fear their patients or to hate their jobs. It's really just a reflection on the paradox of the pandemic. Why do the public and the political elite waver between honoring these frontline hospital workers as heroes, sometimes, and then most of the time allowing them to be dehumanized and degraded for providing essential care? The anger, violence, and behavioral issues that afflict hospital staff are not incidental to our broken healthcare system. They're a manifestation of the same public health crisis that overwhelms medical providers with preventable ailments. And they're also a mirror to the kind of powerlessness that many healthcare workers feel. The problem is the malign neglect of our healthcare and social infrastructure, and both medical workers and the people who are desperate for care or for an emotional outlet are the collateral damage. This week, I spent some time reading a piece in the New York Times Sunday Review by M.T. Anderson titled, In Medieval Europe, a Pandemic Changed Work Forever. Can it happen again? This is a point that has been made several times since the COVID-19 pandemic began. The Black Plague's huge death toll, somewhere between a third and half the population of Europe, meant that relations of work fundamentally shifted. There was too much work to do and not enough people to do it. So what does that moment tell us about our own? Anderson begins, quote, In the wake of a devastating pandemic, millions of people are dead and many more have had their lives upended. Many of those who survive, worn down by a sense of futility in their work and by the impassable gap between the wealthy and everyone else, refuse to return to their old jobs or quit en masse. Tired of being overworked and underpaid, they feel they deserve a better life, end quote. That is a description of then, but it also applies, of course, to today. Fewer people have died as a percentage of the population, certainly, but far more people have died and have lost loved ones than our current push to return to normal should indicate. And we are seeing in miniature the kind of labor unrest that began after the Black Death. Anderson continues, Quote, when we think of the Black Death, we tend to think of the gruesome scenes reported in the cities, the heaped corpses, the trenches where bodies were hurled unmourned. What contemporaries also found eerie, however, was what they saw in the countryside. Not scenes of destruction, but visions of bounty and overgrowth. Fields of ripe grain sitting under the sun, vines heavy with grapes. 
these sites were unsettling because they suggested there was no one left alive to bring in the harvests, end quote. The labor shortage led those who were left to reconsider, he notes, what they were worth. Quote, in England, for example, around half the population was legally tied to the land in serfdom, forced to labor for their local landlord. But suddenly, these workers seemed to have some bargaining power. No longer were they obligated to put up with unreasonable demands. No longer were their employers able to take them for granted. They needed higher wages, for one thing, to deal with the runaway inflation that followed the plague. In England, despite the drop in the cost of some basic commodities like grain, overall prices for consumer goods rose about 27% from 1348 to 1350. Laborers complained they couldn't afford the bare necessities, and if they weren't paid what they demanded, they walked away from the plow, fled their landlord's villages, and went off in search of a better deal. End quote. The world now, despite all the pressures to the contrary, is different than it was before the pandemic. We have been through a massive trauma, and a lot of that trauma was directly related to the workplace. As you all know and have experienced and have written to us about, the realization that your boss doesn't care if you die is devastating. It might have come as less of a shock to the serfs of medieval England, though. And what followed was brutal. Quote, in the years after the plague, all across Europe, landowners and noblemen watched, first in outrage, then in fury, as people walked away from their jobs and went in search of a better life. What followed was a hysterical wave of legislation that tried to return the economy to where it had been before the plague. Statutes and ordinances froze wages at pre-plague levels. They made it illegal to leave a master's land, illegal to flee. They, in effect, made unemployment itself illegal. The English Statute of Laborers condemned peasants who fled their manorial contracts to have an F branded on their foreheads for falsity. In Italy, Florence's new labor laws, openly called against rural laborers, declared that those who neglected their master's farm could be tried as rebels, liable to be dragged through the streets in red-hot chains and buried alive. But the violence wasn't all one-sided. It also erupted in rebellions against the powerful. Quote, in England, popular resentment about taxation and outrageous inequities burst into vandalism and violence in the great rising of 1381. Mobs executed the chancellor and mounted his messily severed head up on London Bridge, end quote. If we want to avoid such violence, and perhaps more importantly, the random scapegoating and targeting of the marginalized that also went on at the time, Anderson writes, what we need is a labor movement that can harness the anger and unrest into political change. It will also require elites to react in a different way than just shoving us back to normal, when normal, as we all know, was broken. But, Anderson warns, there are few signs that the wealthy and powerful have learned anything at all. Quote, but it is a rare elite that is willing to think in the long term. Most, like those all across Europe in the aftermath of the plague, instead choose to hold more tightly to what they have, to try to keep a lid clamped on the shared prosperity of others, and by clutching everything to themselves, in the end will push their nations into crisis and be left with nothing but riot, mourning, fear, flame, and misery. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on the supply chain crisis, shipping and warehousing and trucking and delivery, teacher strikes, and working during and after a plague. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to all of you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, posting about us on social media, talking about us, sharing your stories with us, and 
everything else you have done to make sure that we continue to exist. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to us right now. It really does help us find new listeners and also it makes us feel good. Special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast. That really makes us feel good. Either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon page over at patreon.com slash belabored. We understand, of course, that it is rough right now and that not everybody has the spare cash. That is why we don't paywall any episodes of the show. But if you can help us, labor journalism is not free. We need to value our own labor as well as the labor of everybody we report on. And uh, we also have some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits, belabored tote bags, and other gifts for you if you do subscribe. You can, as always, find out more on the Descent website at descentmagazine.org slash belabored, where we have links to everything we've talked about today and more. If you want to share your story of working or organizing, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a cafeteria worker or an Apple store employee at Starbucks or a soccer player, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>